Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to announce my episode with legendary actress Cherry Jones. Cherry's Broadway credits include Doubt, Angels in America, Major Barbara, Mrs. Warren's Profession, A Moon for the Misbegotten, The Night of the Iguana, Macbeth, Stepping Out, The Lifespan of a Fact, Imaginary Friends, and more. She's also starred off-Broadway in The Baltimore Waltz, Desdemona, When We Were Young and Unafraid, The Importance of Being Earnest, Pride's Crossing, and more. You may also have seen her on screen in Succession, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Ocean's Twelve, A Rainy Day in New York, and more. And now, without further ado, here's Sherry Jones. Well, I'd love to get us started by asking, how did you first come to be interested in performing? My answer is not unlike your previous uh, interviewee interview with uh, Peter Friedman. I never wanted to do anything else. I grew up uh, on a dead end street that deaded into dead ended into woods and a railroad track, and I was sort of the tail end of the baby boom. So my neighborhood was full of other children my age, and we would go across the fence into what had been farmland. Uh, 60 years before, not that far from downtown Paris, Tennessee, a quick bicycle, five minute bicycle ride from a courthouse square. And we would play in the woods and just create, I have to admit, I, I created a lot of the scenarios <laughs> and, and, uh, and then we would act them out, you know, from, there was a lot of, uh, you know, being stranded, in the woods kind of scenarios and um and i just loved it so and loved dressing up like wise men at christmas i didn't want to be mary i wanted to be a wise man because they had more props you know i there were, there were i just loved playing and i realized at a pretty early age that i could keep playing but i couldn't when you come from a small town anywhere you can't quite figure out how you're gonna work your way to new york um where cole porter will always be playing and and i'll always need you know a sequin gown and a glass of champagne and a cigarette holder but you know that was my idea of new york and i couldn't quite figure out how i was going to fit into that world but when i was 16 i got to go to the northwestern uh, high school speech and drama program uh, at Northwestern University, and I uh, they took us up to Lake Forest uh, to a university north of Northwestern by a good little bit, where they were doing a workshop of a play called A Moon for the Misbegotten with Colleen Dewhurst and Jason Robards and William Daniels, 
and we were in the mezzanine and I remember I just grabbed hold of that railing in the mezzanine and didn't let go from from then on because she so captivated me I couldn't believe that that person could be an actor because she didn't have red fingernail paint she didn't have a bouffant she didn't have you know high heels and fishnet stockings I mean she was this big amazing strong woman so she became Colleen do her sort of open my eyes that you could be a big, strong woman and have a career in the theater. And uh, so that was sort of my, she was that wonderful bridge psychologically for me of how this little girl from Paris, Tennessee could find a way to the stage. Yeah. How did you eventually decide sort of where you wanted to study in terms of college? And Well, that too was sort of uh, taken care of. I, at that summer program I asked around about drama schools and some one person said the University of Minnesota and someone said Southern Methodist University and another person said Trinity and another person said and one person said Carnegie Mellon University so when I got we didn't even have SATs in Henry County and West Tennessee we had uh, ACTs ironically ACTs <laughs> and uh, my scores were less than mediocre shall we say <laughs> and, and uh, I sent out my applications and my less than mediocre scores and I got back this letter from Carnegie Mellon congratulating me on my scores and I thought oh man this is the place for me <laughs> and, and but then you had to go on audition and they auditioned all over the country and I I went to Chicago where I got to see all of my buddies from the summer before at Northwestern. Uh, Peter Francis James, I don't know if you know Peter Francis yes, James, but he was he was uh, one of my, my fellow students that summer. And I, I got to see several of them and go and audition for Carnegie Mellon. And I, to my great surprise, I got in and I, and I at 17, my parents drove me to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we waved goodbye, and I didn't see him again till Christmas. And uh, when I got off the plane that Christmas, my I, I said, hey, Mama, hey, Daddy. And they, my mother said, do you mean we're paying all this money for you to get off the plane and go, hey, Mama, hey, Daddy. And I said, I said, Mother, I was just doing my Southern dialect for you. And she said, let me hear it again. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. did your parents kind of recognize your talent early on? You know, they were very artistic themselves. Mother was a brilliant English and American uh, literature, literature teacher at uh, Henry County High School and my father was a florist and they both had beautiful singing voices. Daddy was a tenor and mother was a contralto and they would sing every Sunday at the First United Methodist Church. They would sing for, you know, cancer drives, shows that they would have. They would, they were just always singing. They were part of the Paris Choral Society and my sister and I would get involved in that as little children in the when they would be singing South Pacific we would be the children or when we they would do Christmas stuff we would be the stuffed animals and the toy soldiers you know I mean we were always doing something with them and I think 
I had a wonderful uh, creative dramatics teacher when I was a little girl. She taught all so many people in town, especially kids with stutters and lisps. And and Miss Ruby Kreider took me under her wing, and I think she saw that there was something in me that was a little more uh, developed in that direction. And uh, she encouraged me, and she got me into that Northwestern program that summer. And uh, um, and then mother and daddy were just very supportive. And I know it couldn't have been easy for them, you know, because I, I wasn't a particularly mature or uh, I'm, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, as they say, but I, 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 uh, I did have a gift which they recognized, yeah. And did you find once you got to college that they right away kind of asked you to drop your Southern accent or? Oh my gosh, they beat it out of me like crazy. It was traumatic. It, it really was. Um, it was, but I, they would say, you'll never be able to do the great classical roles with that accent. And I understood their point. <laughs> uh, there are certain words that I don't say very often that still will trip me up. But the, my big word is is a penguin because you don't see it written. You don't say it very often. So it still comes out penguin when I see it or say it. But uh, for the most part, I, I was able to, you know, I was able to neutralize my Southern accent. But I always felt it was always a little schizophrenic because uh, it it's too it feels like two different personalities, the the Southern me and the the classically trained theater me. And Holly Hunter was a couple of years behind me at Carnegie Mellon. And Holly, Holly too has has, you know, she she too could could drop her accent, but she rarely had to. She was able to uh to speak, but I remember the day I was at the bookshop at Carnegie and I heard Carnegie and I heard this Southern voice on the other side of a stack of, of books. And I came around the corner and there was this little girl with this, one of those uh, motley leather Baker boy caps made out of different colored leather patches and one of those rawhide jackets that had the fringe hanging down from the arms. Mm. And I looked at her and I said, where are you from? And she said, I'm from Georgia. Where are you from? And talking out of the side of her mouth. And, and uh, as you, we, when we were always very fond of each other there because we were the pretty much the only Southerners at Carnegie. Uh, Carnegie. See, I still haven't learned how to say it. <laughs> After 50 years. <laughs> And what was the process like there of figuring out sort of what types of parts you would be auditioning for and what interested you the most? No, I don't even really remember auditioning so much because at that point, your first couple of years, if you were lucky enough to get to do a play, um, it was the graduate students who were directing them in the sort of the studio theater. and usually you'd sort of get asked. They would see the pool of younger actors that they could choose from. And I was sort of big and tall. And so I played the mothers or I, I always played the more mature women. I never played the, the ingenues. And uh, so I got to do some really 
interesting things. The I think his name was Stanislav Ikhnevich, who uh, a play called The Mother, uh, where I was a, a blind cocaine addict at the turn of the 20th century. I mean, all sorts of interesting things. The Circus Lady, written by Jason Miller, where I, I played um, a morbidly obese woman, and I, I remember who, who can't really leave her apartment, so the world has to come to her. And it was a, you know, it was a kitchen drama play, but it was really, really kind of interesting. And there was, I just remember wrapping my legs with uh, towels to try to get the, you know, the sense of the size and, um, and being so isolated, working on that. It was a, I got to do some really interesting stuff in, in large part because of my size. Uh, it was, I, I avoided the ingenue parts. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, coming out of college, how did you end up at the American Repertory Theater? Oh, well, boy, that was a stroke of good luck. I, uh, I had been working on the corner of 72nd and Columbus, scooping ice cream and chicken salad for a couple of years. And I got an audition and worked for one season at a short-lived theater called the Brooklyn Academy, Brooklyn, I can't speak today, Brooklyn Academy, Academy of Music Theater Company um, with wonderful, wonderful actors. It, they were going to try to turn it into a national theater company. Of course, it was run by a Brit. His name was David Jones. And uh, there was a subway strike in the middle of it, which pretty much killed the season because people couldn't get out to Brooklyn, to Atlantic Avenue to see it. And, um, but I basically didn't get asked back and I was absolutely crushed. But that summer, that same summer, uh, I got, I auditioned for As You Like It. And I was the last girl to go in the door. And I think the director, Andre Belgrader, who was this wonderful Romanian director, had, for whatever reason, had not found his Rosalind. And I was the last girl in the room. And he took me. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, I remember the Debbie Brown, who was the casting agent, said, uh, do you mind stepping outside the door? And I did. And she came out and she said, can you be in Boston by tomorrow at three? And, and I said, I, 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 yes, yes. I had never done, I was, I was 23. I had never done Shakespeare and I was terrified. And when I got up to Cambridge and met Robert Brustein's company, many of them, my dear friends to this very day, I depended heavily on Tony Shalhoub and Karen McDonald and Tommy Darren, all of these amazing actors to help me, to teach me and help me through the, and the, the director, Andre Belgrader, was this fantastic, Romanians were, Andre Serban and Andre Belgrader were two of my greatest teachers of my life, but particularly Andre Serban, because I did about five plays with Serban, and that's that's when I learned to act. And what sort of method of acting did he teach? Well, it was not a, I can't say it was any kind of method, except um, it was Andre's method. 
he, I remember I was doing, um, I was playing violin Twelfth Night and we were doing the scene when uh, Cesario is, is sent by Olivia. No, I'm sorry, Orsino sends his young page, it was Viola in disguise, to uh, Olivia's court and Mariah mocks the young boy and all the ladies in waiting uh, are veiled. So I don't know who Olivia is. And they all mock this young boy mercilessly. And so we would rehearse it. And then he would say, all right, now Cherry, this time do it like the cock of the walk. Do it, you know, like you're the biggest, you know, the biggest guy in town. And so I'd come and it was really fun. And I was doing, you know, I'm gay, I'm a gay woman. So it was really fun to get to do this sort of cock of the walk kind of guy. <laughs> And uh, and then the next time I would do it, he'd say, all right, this time, Cherry, Cherry, do it like Jesus Christ. This time you're Jesus Christ. You know, and so I would, which was not as much fun. And I came in, you know, as Jesus Christ. And at one point, this marvelous actress, uh, Lynn Chassel, uh, as Mariah, was letting me have it, just taking the piss out of, out of Viola, out of Cesario. And I started to, you know, she got me going and I started to lash back with my words. And Andre said, up, 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 up. What would Jesus do? What would Christ do? He said, <laughs> turn the other cheek, you know. And so by the time I was actually doing it, I had all these different sort of threads of this tapestry of this person that I could sort of play with and call. And through that sort of found my way into it. But the single most important moment in my acting life was when I was doing that gorgeous speech from Twelfth Night about the babbling brook. Oh, I used to be able to do it. I, I don't have Judy Dench's mind nor her <laughs> gifts uh, for Shakespeare and, or anything else, but for quoting uh, different roles. Uh, Make me a willow cabin at your gate and call upon my soul within the house, that speech. And... Andre stopped me in the middle of it. He said, Cherry, Cherry, stop acting. Just say it. And I did. And it was a transformative moment because it was so simple and clean and pure. I wasn't trying to do anything. I was saying the words and not acting them. And I sort of felt at the end of that production, this would have been about 1988, I guess. I was about 33 or 34 and I thought, now I can, I can hang out my shingle. I'm an actor now, but not until then. <laughs> he gave me focus and an ability to concentrate in a way that I had not known. Right. And how did you decide eventually when to kind of leave the company and move to New York and start pursuing things mainly there? It was hard to do because I could have stayed there forever and been quite happy. But I, uh, I did it twice in the mid '80s. My partner at the time lived in New York, and and it was, I was living in Cambridge and she was living in Brooklyn, and we never saw each other and. I thought I, you know, we discussed it and, and it felt like it was time for me to go home. 
and then uh, uh, eventually uh, that relationship ended. Um, but I just saw her about three weeks ago in Maine. <laughs> and uh, I went back, I ended up going back in the late 80s to ART and was there for two more years. And I got to play Grusha and Caucasian Chalk Circle and Major Barbara and Viola and uh, the Serpent Woman in the plays, the Serpent Woman. And, the, you know, just it, it was quite a, a, a wonderful array of parts that I got to play. And after those two years, I thought, okay, I need to, I need to go now because there's no way that I'm going to be able to keep this up here. And, and I don't, and other people need to get to have those roles next. I mean, I, I felt almost piggy about it because I just, <laughs> I just kept getting these marvelous, marvelous roles. So, so then I came back to New York and very quickly got hired by the circle rep and Bogart had been hired to direct Paula Vogel's play the Baltimore Waltz at the Circle Repertory Theater. And that was, that brought me back to New York in, uh, in the arms of, of a great playwright, you know, at the beginning of her New York career, because it was the first, it was the first one of her plays to really be noticed in, in New York. And, uh, and so it was good, it was good for all of us involved. Uh, uh, Joe Montello was the, uh, one of my fellow actors, there were three of us in that play, Richard Thompson, not Thomas, but Richard Thompson and Joe Montello and Anne Bogart directed it. And it was, um, it was one of those experiences. I was up behind a pillar with Joe one day in rehearsal and I felt, I had no idea what the play was about. I had no idea what I was doing. And Anne was wonderful. She was helping all she could, but I just felt lost. And I remember saying to Joe, oh man, I, they, they have got to fire me. They've got to fire me. I can't, do, I don't know what I'm doing. And I remember Joe said in such a calm voice, he said, you know what? Just trust this play. He said, it's, a, it's got a heartbeat all of its own. Just trust this little play. And, and that made all the difference in the world. And I felt freed once I, I thought of it that way. And Anne was able to create this beautiful production. And, and uh, Paula had her introduction to New York. And, and uh, the play was uh, in memory of her book, Brother Carl. Uh, and and I'll never forget when we closed at Circle Rep in New York, they were about to open a production of it in uh, in Texas, and I forget if it was at the Alley or the uh, Denver. I mean, sorry, the Dallas Theater Center, or but they were just about to open it there, and I just thought, how marvelous! It's like the candle never goes out. You know, Carl's memorial continues and we'll go from there to the next theater to the next so that every night for the next many years, hopefully, it will be, Carl's memory will be introduced to people. Yeah. 
And so I guess in between your first and second ART times, you made your Broadway debut in Stepping Out. I did. How did that come about? Uh, well, I auditioned for, for Tommy Toon, and I think March Champion was in the room, and I got cast, and I couldn't dance at all. I couldn't dance at the end of that production. It was about teaching people who can't dance how to dance. <laughs> And I had the best teachers in the world, Marge Champion and Tommy too. Um, but they, it was a delicious thing to start out with on Broadway because it was such a great group of, of women. Uh, Janet Elber, who was a Margaret Graham dancer and Victoria Boothby, who I'd known from Carnegie Mellon, who was in the equity company there one summer and Megan Fay and Carol Shelley and Carol Woods. It was just a one and Don Amendolia. It was a wonderful group of people. Uh, um, uh, I, I'm now, I, I want to give the entire cast. I'm suddenly blocking on a couple of names that I know as well as I'm sitting here. But anyway, it was fun. And we only got to run about seven weeks. Uh, maybe it was a little longer than that. But some another play came and bumped us out of the way by, a, by an unknown writer named Arthur Miller. Uh, we were very bitter. <laughs> but I will say this. I thought, well, we should go out in style. Because at the end of that play of Stepping Out, we all would have on these gorgeous fabulous little tuxedo tutus you know we, we had the the skirts made out of whatever that fabric is and and our top hats and our sequin shoes and our sequin it was all we were tap dancers and, and putting on a fabulous show at the end and I said what if I take everyone's drink order and I make little cards with the drink on the back and the name on the front and I take it over to Sam's, which was the bar restaurant across the street. And I said, and I'll have them set up the bar. So as soon as it's over, and I was like, I was the kid. I was the 30 year old. I was the baby of this group. I said, we can, we can tap out of the theater, run over to Sam's, throw back our shots and then tap back across the street and empty our dressing rooms and go home. And everyone thought that was a great idea. I remember Janet Elber was uh, pregnant. She was about, when that show closed, about six months pregnant. So her shot was orange juice. And um, I may be telling stories out of school here, but sure enough, we talked to the wardrobe department and they said, yes, do it. But we're looking the other way because it's against every rule in the book. It's against everybody. <laughs> it was against every rule to leave the theater in costume. And um, sure enough, the curtain came down and then we had to tear ass across 45th Street to beat everybody getting out of the theater. We ran over there and there was our names. We all went to our, our little name card and toasted each other and threw it back. And, and then we tapped, you know, stopped traffic on 45th as we tapped back across the street to clear out our dressing rooms. And I remember hearing Carol, Carol Shelley saying, Put it on Jerry Schoenfeld's tab, <laughs> who was a prominent Broadway producer. Right. And I don't think a producer of Stepping Out, I'm not sure anyway, <laughs> it was very funny. We had a, that was a wonderful little sidebar there. It was fun. 
And do you find when you start work on a Broadway play that you often have some sense of how long it will run? You know, ah, that's a very, you're full of them. <laughs> the most obvious answer to that question would be doubt because we did it first at Manhattan Theater Club. And we very early on started having Q and A's after the show which we enjoyed as much as the audience, because for the first time ever, the actors, and there were only four of us in the play, we hardly had to say a thing, because often when you do talkbacks, if the play doesn't engage the audience, you end up being asked about famous people you've worked with, or, you know, it's, it's, and um, the audience would start debating it amongst themselves. I mean, Honest to goodness, a couple of times I thought there was going to be a fist fight, you know, and people who come into the theater together, they would start to ask a question and their spouse or their friend or their boyfriend, girlfriend would say, what? How can you say that? You believe him, you know, or you believe her, you know, and it was, and I remember leaning behind Heather Golden Hirsch, who was playing Sister James over grabbing Brian O'Byrne by the arm and saying, Brian, I think we're gonna have these jobs a little longer than we thought. <laughs> and, 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 and I knew, we all knew it from that, those Q and A's because I had never, ever, and by that point I was late forties, I'd never seen a play engage audiences uh, as actively as that play did and is about to again because uh, I Tyne Daly and Leah Schreiber and Zoe Kazan, and I don't know who's playing Mrs. Muller, about to do it at the Roundabout Theater with Scott Ellis directing. And I used to always think as I watched the audience's response each night, I think, gosh, I wish I could see this, you know, so I could know what it is that that is setting people off like this. And now I'll be able to see it in the best of hands. So they're going to take the roof off the American Airlines Theater. I can tell you that much. Yes. Yeah. And when you were doing that play as an actress and more sort of as a person, did you find that you formulated an opinion for yourself as to kind of what really happened? Yeah, well, I, oh, it's so interesting because I can tell you part of my answer, but I can't tell you the whole story <laughs> because... We, uh, Doug Hughes, our director, and John Patrick Shanley, the playwright, and Brian O'Byrne, who played Father Flynn, the priest, went into a room and decided on uh, the priest's background mm. in great detail. You know, they spent an afternoon in there creating Flynn's backstory because really, Shanley, John Patrick Shanley leaves that up to every production and to the individual actors and, and their directors. So they came back in and did not tell us, the three women left in the room, the, the Mrs. Muller and the two nuns, and we didn't want to know. We didn't need to know. We didn't want to know. We knew what we felt was the truth. And I always, though, thought as an as a fellow actor that they would have chosen Brian and John and Doug would have chosen the most interesting thing for the actor to play which would have been that he was desperately he desperately wanted to abuse children 
but had never actually touched a child, but struggled with the desire every instant of his life. And that that's what Aloysius uh, would have seen in him uh, and yet would allow him to stand in front of Sister Aloysius and say, I have never touched a child. Wow. So I thought that would be the most interesting uh, dynamic. So when I, I, this is where I feel like I don't wanna, I, I, one day I was in a green room years later, Doug Hughes and I were working on uh, Mrs. Warren's profession together. And Doug was sitting across the room and I said, oh, my gosh, Doug, I never found out the truth of what was really Flynn's story. Because I had gone on to do the national tour right. and I couldn't know the answer. And by the time I finished that national tour, which was 23 cities, I was so exhausted, I didn't give a damn. What the, <laughs> what the, never even occurred to me to ask the truth. And Doug said, what do you think? What do you think was, was the truth about Father Flynn? And I said, I don't think, I know. And I told him, and he said, you're halfway right. And I said, what do you mean I'm halfway right? And then he told me the story, which was unique to that production. So I wouldn't be giving anything away for any other production if I told you. But I'm not going to tell you because there's a production about to happen and I don't feel like I should. But let, let me just say, when I found out the truth, I practically fainted. <laughs> That's all I'll say. <laughs> In deference to Liev and Tyne, I'm, I'm just going to, because who knows what their truth, what Liev's truth will be when he plays Father Flynn. Right. And so <laughs> on a totally different subject, I'd be curious to ask about, you mentioned kind of being an out actress all, all the way from the beginning. And did you find that that led to any kind of problems or? Well, not, no, no. I mean, the, like I said, I was mostly up in Cambridge in a, in a company, in a repertory company, those first 10 years. So it didn't, that didn't matter because I just went from role to role to role and it didn't bother any of the directors I was working with. And, and I would always tell if a new actor came in and we had intimate scenes together, I would always tell them that I was gay, which was, it's actually wonderful. It's helpful almost being gay, especially when you're younger because men, uh, you just have, it's a fun relationship with your leading men, especially if they're love scenes or sex, because there's this, there's a nice, uh, especially if they know you really, really are gay, <laughs> there's no chance of conversion. So they don't have to try to convert you. They don't have to try to woo you. And yet you can have this wonderful relationship. Their girlfriends are never jealous of you. You know, and my girlfriends were never jealous of them. You know, it was like a really, it was actually a wonderful way to go through my, the prime of my life when I was still occasionally having a, a love scene. Um, but no, I never, I mean, maybe if I'd wanted to have a major film career, 
you know, in my 20s and then 30s, uh, that would have been an issue, certainly in those years, because that would have been all through the 80s and the 90s when that was certainly not allowed. So I, I you know, I've got, let me just say, I've got no complaints. And I, and because I was in the theater, which I've always said, you know, it is rife with homosexuality. I'm not the first. <laughs> so, so everybody, it's where, it's, it's where homosexuals go. We, we run to the theater, you know, where everyone understands us and we understand each other because half of us are. You know? So it was just, it was, uh, I, I, you know, if every once in a while someone will come up and thank me for being, and I'll say, oh, darling, I, I was not in any way a trailblazer. That was done for me long before I got to New York. I mean, Stonewall was 10 years before I got to New York. So, yeah, standing on broad shoulders. And so uh, two great actresses who you worked with early on on the same production of Macbeth were Zoe Caldwell and Glenda Jackson. <laughs> and what was it like to be in a room with them? And Oh, well, first off, it was also... Christopher Plummer and right. Glenda Jackson were Mr. and Mrs. Macbeth, and uh, it was uh, it was a fraught production from the very get go. Our sweet, kind, lovely director Ken Frankel, he was such a wonderful man, was fired early on, I think, because Chris did not feel um, confident with Ken and. Um, and then in came um, Robin Phillips from the Ontario Festival in Canada. Uh, and we were in Baltimore the morning we all, we just got into Baltimore. We, we started, it was like a real old, you know, 1930s out of town tour. Uh, it was the Weislers and we went to Stanford, we went to Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Toronto, Boston, New Haven, and New York. <laughs> and, uh, but it was these enormous houses where they, they knew they could pack the houses uh, on the road because it was Glenda and yeah. it was Chris. So we did the money-making first and then came to New York <laughs> for a rather short run. But um, when we got to Baltimore, uh, we all got calls that the director had been replaced and we were now under the direction of Robin Phillips that the set design uh, had been replaced and uh, we would have a new set design and that we would be performing the old production at night and rehearsing the new production by day, which would be completely different than the previous production. But they didn't have any place for us to rehearse in Baltimore that was a column-free room that was large enough when we first got there. Eventually they did, but for the first week, we were on a proscenium stage with curtains like the ones behind you here, those beautiful red theater curtains closed, which closed off from us on stage the Baltimore uh, Municipal Ice Rink. Uh, we were on the proscenium stage of the Baltimore Municipal Ice Rink, and oh. it was about 45 degrees, and we were all bundled up. 
And poor Christopher Plummer had been in a car accident, I think, when he was young. And in one of the broadsword fights at the end, when we were, but just before we left Stanford and got to Baltimore, Chris had re-injured his neck. So by day, he was in a wheelchair with a neck brace and Glenda was wheeling him around on this proscenium stage in the Baltimore Municipal Ice Rink. Uh, and we were all bundled up in scarves and mufflers and gloves. It was hilarious. And then by the time we got to Pittsburgh, we were still performing the old one by night, <laughs> rehearsing the new one by day, and made that change mid-run in Pittsburgh on the Benedum Center, which is like a you know 4,000 seat house. It was wild. It was a wild one. Anyway, then we went to, uh, uh, to Canada and to the O'Keefe, which is like 4,500 seat house. So we were having to do this kind of arm waving acting. You know, we're the one who's speaking, you know, <laughs> it was that kind of thing because it was so vast. And then we got to the Colonial in Boston. And the Colonial in Boston is this gorgeous 19th century, you know, horseshoe theater, gorgeous little theater. And we were sitting, we were called to the theater early and we were all sitting out in the house in those beautiful 19th century, little small seats. I was next to Glenda Jackson. I was always next to Glenda Jackson when I could be. <laughs> I was mad about her. And I was like a puppy dog is what I was. And all of a sudden, Zoe Caldwell comes down the aisle and is introduced to us as our new director. Robin Phillips had been fired because all of the Toronto critics knew his, they'd seen five of his Macbeths. So to them, it was old hat, it was nothing new. And so they gave it a pan and Christopher had brought in his dear friend, Zoe Caldwell. And Zoe marched up and down the aisle that day saying, it was like she had a swagger stick under her arm, like, you know, Field Marshal Montgomery from World War II, the swagger stick going, the word on the Rialto is that it's soft, it's flabby. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And with every word that came out of Zoe's mouth, Glenda Jackson's posture, which was already pretty ramrod straight, just got straighter and straighter <laughs> and straighter. And I thought she was just gonna come out of her seat like a rocket. <laughs> And it broke my heart because they really, really, really disliked each other. <laughs> and at one point, Zoe wanted to take away this magnificent entrance, uh, mm. Lady M's first entrance uh, that, that uh, Robin Phillips had crafted beautifully. It was a thrilling entrance. Uh, we would part just on a, we would be a whole bunch of us on stage for the, whatever scene comes before that with the Thane of Cotter, he's made Thane of Cotter. Anyway, she would just appear out of thin air and she wanted to change that. And I remember sitting there, you know, like the second row watching Glenda and Zoe just barely even able to look at one another. And Glenda in that voice of hers making it very clear that if that entrance were taken away, she would not appear that evening. And I just thought, oh, no, you know, because they were such lionesses that I so admired. But I will say of everyone, of those three directors, Zoe helped me 
personally the most with my little part. I was Lady Macduff, which I always called the high by die role. It's about three and a half minutes long. <laughs> and it's literally, she comes on, she finds out what's going on, she leaves and she dies. But uh, she was very, very helpful to me. And I always appreciated that. I went way off on that one. <laughs> oh, I love hearing it. <laughs> Jeff Weiss, the great Jeff Weiss was in that production. He was one of the witches. And one night he took my hand. We were backstage. I was being a camp follower, uh, you know, a dirty prostitute camp follower when I wasn't playing clean Lady Macduff. <laughs> and uh, we were in a crowd scene and the witches were mulling around in the crowd. And he took my hand. We were way in the back, nobody could see us. He took, grabbed my hand and put it over his mouth. And he went And I could feel him spitting out his teeth into my hand. And he curled my fingers back. We were on stage, no matter how buried we are on stage. So I couldn't look, I didn't dare open my hand. And as soon as I got, I got into the wings, I opened my hand. And they were the most beautiful late 19th century pearl buttons. Shell pearl buttons. And his, his grandfather had had, or grandmother had had a button factory in I think Allentown, Pennsylvania. And uh, the family had kept, it had closed many years before, but they, he had, you know, bottles of these, these buckets of these buttons. I still had those buttons after I washed them thoroughly. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've talked about your process with sort of creating some of these roles. And I'd be curious to know what that was like with Angels in America coming in mid-run. That was... Uh, Slap dash is all I can say because it, it was, you know, both both plays, both of which were about three hours long. And I had about two weeks rehearsal at night with the uh, assistant stage manager and the fellow, um, uh, the understudies. So I never got to really fly in those rehearsals. I never got to it was it was less than satisfying <laughs> the amount of rehearsal I had because because the I was playing the angel and the angel is the the angel, the nurse, the homeless woman, the Mormon uh, pioneer woman, the Mormon real estate agent, and I want to say there's a sixth homeless assistant. I want to say it's six parts. But and and like I say, my my flying rehearsals, I only got a couple of flying rehearsals, and then out I went, and I replaced Ellen McLaughlin, who was the original uh, angel, and I think she she did it from like California on. I mean, Ellen was was a the original angel, as far as I I know, I could be wrong, and so no one had really. Her understudy had, I'm sure, gone on at some point, but no one else had really done that part. And uh, I never felt particularly comfortable 
in any of those roles. Uh, but it was a wonderful challenge because just to know where to go next, <laughs> you know, when you'd get off stage, it was as uh, uh, sort of frantic as it was getting on stage to act, was getting off stage to figure out, now what? No, because I think there was at one point I was actually even double wigged because mm. uh, it was such a short turnaround. And there was one point when I was up above, uh, it was, my favorite part about angels was just getting into place because you'd go and you'd stand in the wings because the wings at the Walter Kerr are so tiny and you would have millennium hanging over your head and you would be perestroika would be what you were there, there was they had to hang all the other scenery and so you'd be on a hospital bed standing in the wings and they would come and hook these huge wings into this harness that you had on underneath your costume, your angel costume. And then they would take the guy wires and hook your harness at your hip with these guy wires. And then they would very slowly rank, 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 take you up to the top of that fly at the Walter Kerr. And then you'd have to make your wings go flat out on either side and get them out fully so they could then track you across between all the hemp, between all the ropes. So you had to keep your wings at a certain point open and, and they would rink, 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 track you towards center stage. And every once in a while, if you started twerking at all, the wing could get on the wrong side of one of the ropes uh, hanging the battens and they'd have to crank you back, wait for you to still, and then start. So you had to, you had to get up there really early because just <laughs> to get into position and there was a, a baton just, I could almost touch it in front of me and all the way across the top of it, I could see, it was like being on the moon the second time, the second person who landed on the moon <laughs> and you could see the footprints of the, you know, or the golf balls. <laughs> I could see all of Ellen's, the last of her little Gertha's pastilles oh. that she would line up on the bat and just before they dropped her down for this <laughs> for the scene. And it was so she was always sort of with me up there. She was very helpful to me when I was going into that show. But it only ran seven weeks after I I always say I ended Angels in America on <laughs> Broadway. I, I I was certain part part of the very end of it. Yeah. Right. And, and I will just say that the woman who played uh, Hannah Pitt, who took over from Kathy Shelfon, because Kathy and Ellen were the last two original, uh, of course, they were the last two in that show of the original cast. And uh, Laurie Kennedy had played my mother once and she was playing Hannah Pitt. And at one point, the angel had to kiss Hannah Pitt. The, and we always called it the angry angel in the black cat costume would have to kiss Hannah Pitts and this passionate, passion, this Mormon woman and this passionate kiss. And every time we would start to do it, I would start to giggle. And I never giggle on stage, but it was just, she had played my mother the last time. And here I was kissing her. And finally, Lori said, oh, darling, when you close your eyes, you know, you know, she would say, oh, pussy. She called everyone pussy. <laughs> She'd say, oh, pussy, when you close your eyes, I can be anyone. <laughs> <laughs> that got me through it. Oh, man. 
I don't have many deep stories, but I've got sweet, fun ones. (laughs) (laughs) And so a somewhat similar question, which is when you're approaching a revival of a play like A Moon for the Misbegotten or Major Barbara or something like that, Mm -hmm. do you like to look at what other actresses have done with the role or do you prefer to avoid that? Well, I mean, it's so funny because you think about Glass Menagerie. I've probably seen that play more times than any play. And I remember each time I saw it, I never thought I would ever be right for it. And I never wanted to do it. That part never interested me. And and when I would see my various and sundry friends or colleagues or acquaintances do it, I used to always think, oh, that's too much work. It just looks so hard, that part. But with other things, like I had seen Colleen Dewhurst do it at uh, when I was a, uh, that, you know, a kid at Northwestern, and it was a, a seminal moment in my life. So that um, I was already doomed there because I'd already seen it. So that always kept me from wanting to do that play because I just thought I can't compete with Colleen's memory in my mind I'll never be able to get that out of my mind to be free with my own interpretation and 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 the director's production of it um but I'm about to do something that I, I it hasn't been announced uh, officially so I I can't say what it is but again it's a revival and I, it's so funny because I was just talking today to two friends about whether I want to see um the production was actually the original production was actually filmed Mm. uh, and there's also an actual film film of of it so i'm toying with the notion of uh of of watching it and i think if i do i'm still about eight months out from starting rehearsals uh so i think if i do i want to do it sooner than than later so I can see it and then hopefully forget, <laughs> forget <laughs> it <laughs> because you know when you see great women in roles they were meant to play uh, it's just hard to ever want to to take certain things on yeah I mean to have seen Lorette Taylor I don't know how anyone could do glass menagerie for years after that from what everyone said about her performance yeah i saw a revival of a play this past season that was one of the best things i've ever seen in my life and it was uh, top dog underdog did you see that production i didn't get to i so wish i had. oh my god it was that and downstate were two of the most spectacular nights I've ever had in the theater and they were all in the same season and not enough people got to see them those performances were just magnificent and it's only because I'm (laughs) my age at this moment that I'm blanking on on the the name of the actors in Top Dog oh it was I think um Corey Hawkins and and, um Yaya Abdul-Mateen yes thank you thank you thank you thank you they blew my socks off I just suddenly I was just uh, started thinking about revivals and that just knocked my socks off and that and then downstate uh, now I'm just doing 
shout outs because uh, <laughs> of, of what what moved me most last year. But those those were the two. I don't get to see enough theater. I'm going to try to change that this coming season. And has there been a role that you've wanted to play in a revival that has never happened or? No, I, you know, I'm basically half illiterate and a little lazy. And I always say, if, if I haven't done it, I haven't read it. And it's almost true. It's not, it's <laughs> terrible, but, um, I've never been a wildly ambitious person. I have been a profoundly lucky person who loved to work hard and, you know, was passionate about uh, the community and getting to be at work with the crew and the, you know, I just love the society and the familial feeling of the theater. But I've never been one of those people who would come to a director and say, I don't know why no one has done this. I'm dying to do it. Let's do it together. I, I've never said that once in my life. I have depended on the kindness of, you know, directors and artistic directors. And, um, yeah. I also want to just say for a moment how saddened I was by the death of Tina Howe. Uh, I got to do her Pride's Crossing at Lincoln Center in the late 90s, uh, a lifetime ago. But it was uh, one of the most joyous roles I ever got to play. And Tina was such a light and so unique. You just never met anyone like her. You know, she was half Brahmin, half, you know, patrician, New England. And then the other Part of her was olive oil and goofy and wonderful and and she was and and just a, a great mind and a great lover of the theater and of actors and direct she she was wonderful and and she did painting churches and also coastal disturbances where there were her big big successes but um we just lost her a, a few weeks ago and i just had to say how much i admired her and enjoyed her and when you're playing a role like the one in Pride's Crossing that's based on a real person or like Mary McCarthy in Imaginary Friends, mm -hmm. do you like to do research on those people? Well, I, I loved researching Mary McCarthy because she was just so much fun to, to read about and so fascinating. And I was having to keep up with Swoosie Kurtz, who was playing Lillian Hellman in that play. So uh, Yet that one I did do a great deal of reading and also because you know, she was a m major and very important writer in her day. Um, Pride's Crossing was loosely based on the woman who swam the English Channel, but the, but, but the woman who swam the English Channel was a, like a 19 year old from Queens. <laughs> Uh, and the character that I played in Pride's Crossing, again, was this New England blue blood um, that uh, she, Tina had concocted. So it wasn't really a real person at all. It was sort of a, a mishmash of things. But uh, I did go and swim. Uh, we first started it in San Diego, and I went and swam with a sort of a polar bear club because the English Channel water temperature is so cold. And I wanted to know what that was like. And I went and, and swam very briefly uh, 
in the wintertime in Southern California uh, in a temperature that was similar to the English Channel. Um, but I, as far as research, if a play's good, that you don't have to do that much research, right. you know? I mean, if you're playing a nun and you're Methodist from Tennessee, you need to know about your beads and your rosary <laughs> and, you know, the prayers and the this and the that, and that you can learn. And, but then it's just all about the, for me, it's just the, it's the play. And if I have, and I love history, I'm a student of history anyway. So sometimes I don't, but like for this new play that I'm about to do, I am going to be doing a lot of reading um, about the time period in, in which it takes place and and from a lot of different, uh, I want to know politically, I want to know agriculturally, I want to know, you know, so yes, for certain things I do, if I've got a lot of time, I, I am going to do a lot of research on that one. Yeah. And I'd love to ask about the two Shaw plays that you've done on Broadway. And do you find that he has his own kind of vernacular that speaks to oh, you? Oh, yes. There's not another one like him, that's for sure. And I wish I, I loved speaking Shaw. I, I loved that Major Barbara that we, we did at the roundabout. It was a, it was a beautiful production. And, and the great actor, David uh, Warner, uh, played undershaft and Dennis O'Hare was cousins and it was it was a it was a Dan Sullivan directed it John Lee Beatty did this gorgeous set Jane Greenwood did the costumes it was a it was a superb superb production and I had done it once before so I I had gotten it was my my first time with Mr. Shaw and uh, to get to do it twice back to back was very helpful uh in understanding, in understanding the language, but it's so clear, it's so easy. It, there's nothing, I mean, the ideas, the, the, the greater ideas of Shaw are, are quite uh, conundrums at times in the things he posits, but the, the language itself is just heaven. Mm. Yeah. And are there other roles of his that you would want to do? I don't know if, you, if you've read other Shaw plays you were saying. Told you, if I haven't done it, I haven't read right, it. Right. <laughs> Sorry, Charles, it's terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm not much of a thinker. I, I've always thought if I could just have a little more intelligence, I, <laughs> I could have really, really done it. No, but it's, uh, I, uh, I do, I, I depend, and maybe that's why I depend so much on directors. I so need a good director and I'll be the, and I always tell every director I work with, I, you know, I just want you to direct the pants off me. You know I mean? I just need you to, and, and Doug Hughes did that for me with doubt. I would never have gotten to the place I needed to be with that role without Doug Hughes ever. Uh, yeah. Helpful directors. Um, I have to have a great director. I hope that doesn't put too much pressure on them. <laughs> and you've done a few shows that touch on kind of controversial subjects like doubt or when we were young and unafraid mm -hmm. and things like that. And do you find anything to be kind of difficult about those plays and getting into those darker areas? It's, it's interesting because you, 
this isn't exactly the answer to that question, but I, I'll try to get to it. But the, I, you remind me that sometimes I, I went through a period where I did particularly grim plays, one after another, after another, after another. And I got depressed. Mm -hmm. I just got to a point where going to the theater eight times a week to be devastated by the end of the night. I, I just finally hit a point where I, I needed a real, I needed a break psychologically because uh, I'm not one of those people that takes things home with me. I never was, but it's accumulative. And when all you do is tragedy, and I laugh it off for the best person. You know, I'm not, it's not because I'm a method actor and I would go home with the agony of Josie Hogan and knowing Jim's walking off to die. Or, you know, I, wasn't, I didn't think I carried any of that. But I think it was just the accumulative effect of doing so much tragic work. Um, right. And it was one right after another, after another, after I, I rarely took a break. Um, in, in things that are more controversial, it's no different than. To me, that that's no different than any other dark uh, thing that I'm working on. I mean, that was about a, a, the, when we were young and unafraid. The woman had been an abortionist, and uh, what was the other play you you mentioned? Oh, doubt. Oh, doubt. Well, yes, that. <laughs> Most of us know what that was about. Uh, who loved the theater? Um, yeah, I. Oh, it's. It doesn't really, that doesn't matter. The, yeah. It's just the, sometimes the grimness of things are, are what's difficult after a while. Your most recent Broadway show has been the lifespan of a fact. And yes. How did that sort of first come to you? And I'm not even sure, but I got, I, it was an offer, which I, I couldn't believe. And, and I, and, and, uh, and they had Dan, at that point, and because I, I think Bobby and I probably came on sort of in tandem about the same time, but they had Dan, and and I remember thinking, reading it and thinking it was so interesting. And then I then I heard Dan was doing it, and I thought he's a smart boy. If he wants to do this, I want to do this, and I want to do it with him because he's he's he seems like such a he's such a man of the theater. Uh, and so I was so glad I got, that was such a happy experience. I mean, you put Bobby Cannavale and Dan Ratcliffe and uh, together, and it was just, it was just the three of us. And we were at Studio 54 who were used to doing all these big shows. So the crew loved doing our little play because it was effortless. They didn't have to lift a finger except the prop master had to do some stuff. I mean, it was so, uh, it was a fairly static set and, and, uh, so we all just got to go to work and play and and my God, the audiences were so hungry to laugh. Uh, and Dan and Bobby could just wring it out of them because uh, it was, oh, it was so much fun. I love that. And I never got to do comedies. See, I'm already in a lighter mood just talking about it. <laughs> right. And so more recently, I'd love to ask what the kind of process of the pandemic was like for you as an actress and as a person. And Well, I got, I've ridden my bike to the theater for 40 years. And uh, 
And I've always felt like Peter Pan on my bicycle. I just love riding a bicycle and especially in New York. But it had started getting feeling, I don't think it was my age as much as it was, it started to feeling kind of dangerous with all the e-bikes whizzing by at 35 miles an hour in the bike lane. It was starting to feel more daunting. And a car door opened on me uh, three weeks before Broadway shut down. Oh. And I badly broke my knee. Um, it was about three places in my femur right at the right at the knee and it's crooked now and I that happened right as the pandemic began and Sophie and I live in in two relatively small rooms up a steep flight of stairs and my sister in Tennessee once Broadway shut down as she had been saying cherry just come home to Tennessee and and rehab down here so you won't be I would when I would have to go to the doctor here I'd put on my bicycle helmet to go down the stairs because I was so afraid oh. I was going to topple down the stairs um, and so the day Broadway shut down we looked at each other and she started looking for a hotel midpoint between New York and and Paris, Tennessee, and I started calling the rental car companies. And we we drove down and stayed for over three months with my sister and her husband in uh, in Tennessee while I recouped. And and of course it was so it was the difference was unbelievable because it was, you know, those first three or four months in New York when the death rate was just, were you in New York for that, yeah, Charles? Yeah. yeah. So you know better than I. And and yet where I was, there wasn't one case. Mm. It, it was, it just hadn't moved yet. And, and of course, people in where I come from were very anti anything that had to do with uh, stopping the spread of COVID because they didn't really believe in it and they didn't really they hadn't seen it yet you know and uh but we would wear our masks and having come from New York we also didn't want to bring it you know to Tennessee <laughs> and uh so it was a it was a strange place as a New Yorker to be during that period I mean we were very obviously grateful to be there but uh my sister and uh Sophie would she had a huge set of sleigh bills, like proper, you know, proper sleigh bills, my sister, and a dinner bill. Uh, and so every night at six in Tennessee, which was seven in New York, they would go outside and ring the dinner bell and the sleigh bells for all the healthcare workers in New York. And this little spot in West Tennessee was ringing with bells. Several people in my sister's neighborhood would do that. And then, of course, eventually it did come to my little community. And uh, ironically, the death rate at the end of the day was higher in my county than it was in New York City mm -hmm. at, at the end of, of everything. That first big round, tragically, it was greater than in New York yeah. per capita. Right. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. I'm I'm so sorry too for everyone who wherever lost loved ones. It's still unbelievable that 
you know, I, I walk into an airport or a train station, and particularly this summer, where no one needed a mask, no one had on it, and you just think, how is it possible that the world, that that burned through the world, and now we're back almost where we were before, just in terms of having confidence in right. that that's, that's not going to happen again. Of course, it is happening again, but uh, hopefully it will never be as severe again, hopefully. And you mentioned that you like plays that make make people feel a little less alone. Mm -hmm. And aside from doubt, which of course we were talking about, has there been a play where you've gotten a lot of reaction from the audience, kind of saying that, or? Huh. Well, of course, everyone always has a sort of profound reactions to Glass Menagerie. But I always think it's 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 more the Joan McCaller and, and Laura. <laughs> That's the scene that 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 just take people away. That scene in in John Tiffany's production was with Celia Keenan Bolger and Brian J. Smith. You didn't did you get to see that production by any chance? No, no. You didn't. It's they were it was as golden as a as you can imagine, it was just, they were spectacular together. And uh, audiences were just, there have been, you know, every once in a while someone will come up to me and, and tell me about something that, it's the, it's the joy of a nice long career. People will come up and talk to me about something that meant a great deal to to them. And I'll, I'll be so touched that it did, but I couldn't tell you now to save my life what, what it was. <laughs> oh. Because it doesn't matter if, if something that I had the good luck of being part of touched them. That's what matters, not so much the project, the name of the project. And so I would love to close by asking, with such a long and such a great career, what advice would you give to someone just starting out as an actor? Well, be tender with yourself. We are Artists, artists of, I think, any striper, are, are, we're our harshest critics. Uh, we want so much to, we get goals in our heads of what we want to achieve with a role or a painting or a piece of music. And it's so difficult to, to ascend to whatever heights we, we give ourselves. And, uh, and so we can be so cruel to ourselves and then that doesn't obviously that's not only artists but we we all can be so self-critical and and I always say to young actors just try to treat yourself like your dearest friend like you would treat your dearest friend and speak to yourself more in that voice than than the, the harsher voice and and my mother always told me um, to never confuse your self-worth with your professional success or failure, uh, because again, we we do take take ourselves uh, and our work so seriously that we we forget that they're separate from who we are in our hearts and in our relationships to our friends and loved ones and uh, and the greater community. So, I I've always tried to uh, remember that when I've gotten blue about certain things but the but the being tender i think in a way that and be be prepared and on time 
and pleasant. And that goes a long way in a career. It really does. I know I prefer to work with people who are professional, prepared, on time, pleasant. Uh, and even if you're not the greatest actor in the world, if you bring those qualities into a rehearsal room, people are going to want to collaborate with you. And uh, it, it really makes a huge difference. And it makes your life better, too, because uh, you're open to the world. You have an open heart. And that's, that's a, a good way to go through life if you can. That is great advice. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such an honor to talk to oh, you. Oh, Charles, thank you so much. And now I'm going to have to go back and listen to your body of work. All Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I will be joined by my guest, legendary Broadway critic Frank Rich, who served as the chief drama critic for the New York Times from 1980 to 1993. You won't want to miss that episode, so make sure to tune back in for that. And thanks for listening.